This morning we're continuing our summer series on the life of David. As Lee mentioned, in Arizona, it seems like the summers are getting shorter for kids. They go back to school like July 15th. Let the parents say amen. Um, But it's going to be like 130 degrees until Thanksgiving. So here we go. Um, We're continuing our series on the life of David. And today, uh, we're going to be hanging out mostly in 2 Samuel 12. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. Um, But the passage is 2 Samuel 12 through 18. So last time I preached was on Father's Day about a month ago, and uh, David had just killed Goliath. He was on the run from Saul. He was doing all the right things, right? King David, the man after God's own heart, the Bible hero, he's doing good things. But the last few weeks, Pastor Steve has preached, uh, we've seen things not go so well for our guy David, right? He's taken multiple wives and concubines. It's not what he's supposed to be doing. He's neglecting his kids. Uh, largely, he's acting passive in nature, just in his relationships. Uh, David is, is on a bad track. And last week, we studied the story of David and Bathsheba, which is probably the second most famous story of David in Scripture. What happens is David is the king over all Israel. He sees this woman, Bathsheba, bathing. He looks down upon her. He sees her. He desires her. And he takes Bathsheba he sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and then he realizes, hey, I need, to do, I need to get rid of this, and he tries to conceal his sin by killing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And this morning, what we're going to see is that sin is going to have consequences. Sin had consequences in the life of David, and it trickled down to David's family, and sin has consequences for us today and has the potential to trickle down to our families and those around us. In the New Testament, the book of James, James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So here we see David's been tempted, David's been lured in by his own desire, and then that desire was conceived. So if we're going to stick with James's metaphor on pregnancy, we're going to see the results of David's sin in our passage this morning. So in chapter 12, you have Nathan, who's a prophet. Nathan sent to David, and he speaks the word of the Lord over David, and he says two things in particular. In verse 10, he says, the sword shall never depart from your house. And then right after that, he says, evil will be raised up out of the house of David. That's the word from the Lord to David. And then in verse 14, we see the consequences of David's sin take root. Verse 14, let me go back here. Verse 14, Nathan says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. So immediately we see that this child who is conceived out of sin, right? The child that was conceived out of adultery, the result of David taking another man's wife and sleeping with her, we see that child become sick and the child dies seven days later. That's a difficult thing to deal with. Immediately, we see brokenness as a result of sin. We see brokenness in the way that David responds, and we see brokenness in the death of the child. We see that sin is immediately carrying consequences in his family. But remember, James 1, 14 and 15, it says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we're not even through chapter 12 and we see the fracture of sin start to take place in David's family. And it gets worse. 
We're then given a picture of how sin spreads to David's older children. So here you have uh, David's family, right? You have Amnon, that's David's oldest son. You have Tamar, who's David's daughter. Uh, scripture describes Tamar as being very beautiful. And then you have Absalom, who's David's second son. So Amnon, David's oldest son, participates in one of the most disgusting acts in all of Scripture by first falling in love with his sister Tamar, then he leverages his own power against Tamar, takes advantage of her, and rapes her. So 2 Samuel 13 is difficult to read. But that same luring and enticing of the desire that James talks about, that same luring and enticing that David goes through with Bathsheba, we see, it, we see it start to play itself out with Amnon, his son, being lured and enticed by his own desires. It's a pattern that takes place throughout David's family. Chapter 13 is a launch pad to show that the sins of the father are amplified in the sins of the son. So you have Tamar, this unspeakable crime is committed against her, that's David's daughter. She obviously leaves the house in shame. And meanwhile, you have Absalom. That's David's second son. Notice is the state that his sister Tamar is in. And it's interesting what he says to Tamar. He says, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. I read that and I thought that was a little odd. So Tamar moves into the house with her brother Absalom. The scripture tells us that she lives in desolation. Scripture also tells us that Absalom does not speak a word to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad. He doesn't say a word to Amnon because Amnon had violated his sister Tamar. So the root of sin just continues to spread. So if you read this passage and you don't really pay attention, Absalom seems like a normal guy. He sees the wrong that's done to his sister. He takes his sister into his house. He cares for her, and then he appears to be righteous because he's going to avenge what happened to his sister. But if you know who Absalom is, Absalom's David's third son of David's fourth wife. He would have been the second son in line for the throne of his dad. And it's hard to trust his motives because, for the most part, his vendetta is against the one son who is in direct line for the throne. And we see scripture describe Absalom as an absolutely beautiful man. 2 Samuel 14, 25 and 26, it says, Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. So you have Absalom, right? He's a good-looking dude. He's got these long, flowing locks. That weight at the end of the year when he would cut his hair equaled five pounds. I'm going to stand up here and act like I'm not jealous of Absalom's hair. But it's interesting, if you read the original Hebrew, that term no blemish is used all over the Old Testament. And every time that term for no blemish is used in the Hebrew, that term is used to describe holiness. And that's people sacrificing to the Lord, or that's holiness with the priests. But notice here, when the author uses it here in 2 Samuel, it's in reference to Absalom's physical appearance. The author's using it to show that Absalom, he's externally beautiful, just like Saul, right? But yet internally, he's devoid of any sort of moral character. The reality is that Absalom's a politician, he's opportunistic by nature, 
And like I just said, he reminds us a lot of King Saul. In his book, The Tale of Three Kings, Gene Edwards describes Absalom as having the outward cloaking of the Spirit's presence without the inward filling of the Spirit's life. Absalom's whole plot is to just get to the throne and overthrow his father David. So then we see the sin continue to take root in the house of David, and then Absalom conspires against his brother. That unspeakable rape that was committed against Tamar, Absalom takes that into his own hands. And scripture tells us that two years after that event happens, Absalom devises a plan to get his brother Amnon over to his house. Then he commands his servants to get Amnon drunk with wine and kill him. Remember James, right? But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin brings forth death. It starts with David taking Bathsheba to satisfy his lust, and then he kills Uriah to make things easier. Then we see it in his sons. We see Amnon take his sister to satisfy his lust. Then brother murders brother. Sin has consequences. There's amplification of the sin of the father, and it can be seen in the sins of his sons. So Absalom kills his brother. He immediately flees for three years. Meanwhile, David's shown mourning his son. One son's dead. The other son's on the run. And scripture tells us that David longs to go to his son, but he's never really proactive in getting in contact with Absalom. So Absalom finally returns to Jerusalem where David was. And for two years, Absalom lived in Jerusalem, and Scripture tells us that not once did he see the king's face. Finally, Absalom comes before his father, but we see his true character start to take root as he conspires to to basically kill his dad so he can get to the throne. Absalom would literally stand at the city gates, and every traveler that would come into Jerusalem, he would sit there and stop them on their way and tell them how great he was and how he would make a better king than his father. He was a manipulator. And we start to see Absalom and his house and his support group start to grow. Meanwhile, you see David's support group start to dwindling to the point where David has to take off from Jerusalem, and he's actually on the run from his own son. So while he's on the run, Absalom finally gets back to Jerusalem. He takes, tries to take control of the throne. He shows his false power to the people of Israel. And right away, he starts to conspire to kill his own dad. But yet again, as we've seen throughout First and Second Samuel, God protected David. So the two camps go into battle. And Absalom is eventually killed by David's men, even though David said, don't do that. And you see King David in chapter 18. He's absolutely grief-stricken over the death of his son, that same son that he didn't even try to have a relationship with. But we find David deeply moved in his chamber, right? And what are the words he's speaking? He's saying, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David's heartbroken, but David's sin had consequences to it. It had consequences in his own life, and then you've seen that sin spread and has consequences in David's family's life. Because that's how sin works. That's why you see generational sins that take place over generation, generation, generation. And the only thing that can break those sins is the grace, forgiveness, and blood of Jesus Christ. So what's the lesson here? I think it's be careful what you begin. Not to belabor the point, but that passage in, passage in James kind of has a rhythm to it, right? It starts at like we're tempted 
And then there's a luring, then there's an enticing on our hearts, and then finally we act on that sin. And when we sin, it's this act of temporary fulfillment, and that brings forth death. You have to slay your sin. You have to put your sin to death. You have to be careful what you begin. Because the problem is we tell, we tell ourselves that our sin is our own business, but sin has consequences to it. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul tells us to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Then he goes on to list what to put to death. He says sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Why? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Understand what Paul's telling us here. You should put to death, like you should murder, you should kill, you should act violently toward. And then he lists these behaviors. The old Puritan theologian John Owen once said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Paul's pushing this point. Like when it comes to sexual immorality, when it comes to sex outside the bounds God has given us, you should be serious about putting that sin to death. You can't play with that sin. You can't try to train it. That thing's not a pet. It will devour you and destroy you. But it's not just sexual immorality, okay? He mentions impurity. That's moral corruption. If you're morally corrupt, are you shady with how you do things on your job? Are you manipulative in the way you navigate the relationships in your life? He talks about passion, and Paul's not saying don't be passionate. He's saying check your heart. What actually guides you? Is it the things of the Lord, or is it just impulses? He talks about evil desires. Think impulses, compulsions that are out of step with God's good plan on our lives. Everyone in this room, no matter if you've been going to church for years or it's your first Sunday, we all struggle with impulses. We struggle with the fact that we want to give ourselves over to the things that are outside of God's good design in our lives. Stop and think what Paul's asking us to do. He's asking us to be violent toward our sin. Put those things to death. Don't play around. When you catch a whiff of those things in your life, you have to recognize that's your flesh and the enemy trying to kill you. You shouldn't pretend like it's no big deal. You shouldn't be like those fools who take baby cheetahs and try to make them pets in their house, right? You end up on YouTube under the heading, When Animals Attack. I think there was a show in the 90s, it was called When Animals Attack. I was a young buck, I probably wasn't watching it. Um, but you see like these videos of people who take like a cheetah and they raise it and they're sitting there like, it's crazy. I like thought my cheetah was so cute, I decided to try to stick my head in its mouth and it bit me. And then they look just absolutely flabbergasted and they're like, well, he was just so cute. I raised him when he was little. Well, that cheetah is an apex predator. That cheetah kills stuff. That's what apex predators do. They kill things. Paul's saying here like, hey, if you mess around with these lists of things, someone's going to die. I'm just saying that very few of us take this approach to these sins in our lives. We have impulses. We have compulsions towards sexual immorality, toward corruption. And the thought never slips in our heads that, hey, something's trying to kill us. We don't go like, hey, I need help. Like, someone's trying to kill me here. No, we're just like, I'm good, man. Like, just sit. Sit there. Here's a treat. You just do what I tell you to do. I'm in control. I trained you. I've got this. But be careful because that sin will devour you. You have to put it to death. You have to be careful what you start. So what do we do with David here? 
We've seen that this sin went on and had consequences in his family, but how did he navigate that great sin in his life when it's brought to his attention? Notice the first verse in chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. The word sent was used 12 times in chapter 11 to describe the story of David and Bathsheba. You have David sending, you have Bathsheba sending, you have Joab sending. Now in 12.1, you have God sending Nathan to David. So who's Nathan? He's a prophet. And what will Nathan speak to David? He's going to speak to him the word of the Lord. And he draws David in, not by going up to him with his finger pointed, saying, hey man, I know what you did. He draws him in with a story. Because Nathan was the prophet of the Lord, he knew exactly what it would take in order for David to see the seriousness of his sin. Because how many of you know that sometimes when your heart is hard and dark, sometimes that direct approach from someone is not always the one that works best. But Nathan tells David a story, and in this story there's two men. You have a rich man who is said to have many flocks and herds. He had everything he ever wanted, the rich man. And that's juxtaposed with the poor man. And the poor man had one little ewe lamb, one lamb. And scripture tells us that literally the poor man went and bought that lamb. He raised it in his house. It got to eat the food in the house. It got to drink of the cups in the house. It sat on his lap. It said the poor man treated it like his daughter. But the poor man did all that. That lamb was special to the poor man. And then you have a traveler come in. And the traveler is going through the town, and he wants some food. He sees this rich man, everything that the rich man has, and I just imagine the traveler looking at the rich man and saying, hey, can you spare me part of your cow? I would like a ribeye. And what happens is the rich man, the story tells us that the rich man's unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to sacrifice for the traveler. But what does the rich man do? Instead, he goes and takes the poor man's lamb. He prepares the poor man's lamb, he slaughters it, and then he feeds it to satisfy the traveler. So Nathan tells this story to David, and David's response, he's like really angry by it. Look at 12.5, verse 5, it says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who had done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So David recognizes the terrible act that this rich man did. He recognizes the sin that the man committed. And what does David want? He wanted justice. He wants the man to be killed for doing this to the poor man. Like we all want when wrongdoing's done, right? We all want justice. This is why you turn on the news, you see people laying in the streets because they want justice. But what's interesting is David also wants restoration. Because the poor man was sinned against, he should be paid back fourfold. But if you dig a little, it's not hard to see in this parable that the rich man is David. He has all his flocks and herds in his house. He has all his wives and concubines. And then you have this poor man, which is Uriah. And he's got one little ewe lamb, that's Bathsheba. And then this desire comes in as the traveler, right? And instead of David using his own house to satisfy his desires, he takes Uriah's wife, and that gives birth to sin. And Nathan looks at David and he says, David, you are the man. Not like you are awesome, like you are the rich man. And in that moment, David's sin is revealed to him. In verse 11, Nathan says, Thus says the Lord, 
Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David thought he was doing something in secret. David was concealing his sin in what he thought was secret. But here you, were, you hear the word of the Lord go forth to David and the Lord's telling David like, man, I'm going to bring your sin before all Israel and I'm going to lay that thing bare before the sun for all the people to see. Mark 4.22 says, For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor had anything been secret, but that it would, become, that it would come to light. So David's sin comes to light and what does he do? Verse 13, David looks back at Nathan and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He confesses that to Nathan and he confesses that he sinned against the Lord. David's response to the convicting word of the Lord is two things, repentance and confession. But here's the problem with us when we read passages like this. We are just like David. Oh, I can't believe the rich man. I can't believe what that guy did. He went and took the poor man's lamb and killed it. I would never do that. Let's get justice on that guy. We're the good guys, right? And here's the deal with us. Nathan the prophet isn't going to knock on your door this afternoon to let you know what your sin is. But what do we do when we're approached with our sin? What do we do when we hear the word of the Lord? Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrows, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So sin is revealed to us in various ways. Oftentimes that's just like a tugging on your heart by the Holy Spirit, showing us those things in our heart that are dark, that need to be confessed, that need to be repented of. But sadly what happens is when the Lord goes after our hearts, there's this reaction that starts to happen. We don't want that. Like, we don't really want that. Like, I don't want God to, to point out my hidden sin. I certainly don't want my hidden sin exposed to the light. My idolatrous attitude, I don't want God to point that out. My lack of compassion on my neighbor or just people I come in contact with in general. The fact that on some level I think I'm God. Like, I don't want God to expose those spots in my heart. So what happens is, like all of us at one point or another, if you're a Christian, you've heard the gospel, and at some place, at some level, your hearts become regenerated, your hearts are awakened to the gospel, and immediately what you set out to do is do what's right and avoid what's wrong, right? And that works for us, and that's not a bad thing. And we start to feel like this, God is good, God is great, he's all this, he's all that, he's gracious, and then what happens? In the middle of like, I'm going to do right and I'm going to avoid what's wrong, God identifies that area in our heart and he starts to ask about it. He says, hey, what's this? And what happens in that moment is we say, oh yeah, like I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to deal with that. How about this, Lord? How about I do this, this, and this, and then you just leave me alone about that? How about I just do this, this, and this, and, and I'll just give you that instead of you dealing with that spot? How about instead of dealing with that, instead of confessing that, instead of repenting of that, instead of coming clean with that, how about I just teach a small group, God? I'll lead a connect group. 
I'll memorize scripture. I'll go on a missions trip. I'll do all those things and you'll leave me alone, right? And Jesus goes like, no, I want that. I want that particular thing. And so what we end up doing is we busy ourselves with religious, right, moral action in an attempt to run from God, truly being able to penetrate your heart. That's why you get a weak, watered-down version of Christianity in the church. Because you got people who are so busy doing all these things, but their heart isn't truly transformed. So what happens is you walk in here and you don't have worship in your heart. You can't worship. You don't have joy. You just have a list of things to do. And if you do them well, then you get to look at other people who don't do them well, and then you get to feel superior, so it feels good. All while Jesus just aggressively goes after that one part in your heart. Isn't it funny that you can use religion to run from the Lord? So we've seen this morning that sin has consequences. Sin must be put to death. And to be honest, the sequence of killing sin in our lives is pretty straightforward, right? You find it, so it's revealed to you in some way, and then you repent of it, you confess it, and then you walk in obedience. So what happens is that passage in Hebrews goes on to say, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Then we're instructed to do what? Draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, right? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I want to be straightforward this morning because I think there could be someone in here where sin's just festering away at your heart, and that sin is killing you. But your response to that sin is just to white-knuckle it through life, trying to appear morally right. God is not after your begrudging submission to him. Someone might have walked in here for the first time, and you hear the consequences of sin on David's life. We see his baby die. We see his daughter get raped by his son. We see one son kill the other son. But you could just keep reading the Old Testament because it doesn't stop at chapter 18. David's sin doesn't stop. It went on for generations. So for those of you who have never given your, heart, given your heart to Jesus, those of you that are sitting here like, man, this all sounds familiar. My dad was this and his dad was this and I look at myself and that's exactly what I've turned into as a father and a man. The only thing that can break that is Jesus, the Son of God. The scripture tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, is the great high priest. What does that mean? Jesus, as the great high priest, was sent to earth to live just like we do, but yet he didn't sin. He died a brutal death in our place so we can have that opportunity to draw near the throne of grace. We can receive mercy for what we've done. We can be forgiven. But for those of you who would consider yourself like varsity Christians, you're on the varsity team, but yet you're unwilling to give God those dark places in your heart, yet you're awesome at every single part of church, we're not talking about religion. That's your heart. That's the thing God's going to go after. If you take care of the symptoms without taking care of the actual disease, you're never going to get better. The symptoms are just going to fester in different ways. So this morning, there's some things that need to be confessed. There's some things that need to be wrestled with. There's some things that need to be admitted to and confessed to. You know, it's interesting when you see the response of David to Nathan. Not only does he confess that he sinned against the Lord, but he confesses that to 
Nathan. And we have this like connect with others sign behind me and that's one of like the things that we want to do and we're all really good at connect group and plugging in and living in community but when it comes to confessing our sins to one another it's hard. And I understand that's a hard thing. But is there an area of your life that the Lord wants to deal with and you're just sitting there going, oh no, like I'm not confessing that. I'm not going to get help for that. I'm just going to hide that and shove that away and I'm going to replace it with a bunch of other things. God's not going to stop haunting you about that thing. And in the end, God wants your heart. 